Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. G'day everyone and uh, as we record this, two days after the Socceroos have qualified for the second <laughs> round of the World Cup, it's great timing to be recording this interview with the great man Gary Cole. How are you Gary? Yeah, I'm great thanks Ian. Thanks for the invite. It's uh, an honour to have a chat with you today. I'm um, over the moon, over the moon for, for Arnie and the Socceroos. It's just... Um, They've got a uh, their branding in camp is is uh, many jersey many journeys one jersey so the the uh, it didn't matter when you play for the Socceroos um, we all feel um, the pride of what they've just achieved and and obviously just a bit of a big game coming up on Saturday <laughs> a little bit uh, this that game will have been uh, done and dusted by the time this one goes out but uh, fingers crossed we keep um, proving everyone wrong and, and somehow knock off the argies that'll be magnificent yeah um, bring Wadey back that's what I reckon yeah exactly yeah and for the listeners uh, Gary's got his uh, soccer who's jersey on there um, and uh, for those who are football fans in Australia, you can go back and listen to the Paul Wade episode, one of the early episodes too. It's a great one. Uh, interestingly, talking about his run-ins with Argentina as well. So the timing is fantastic. All right, Gary, we didn't come here just to talk football, but I'm sure it will come up more. <laughs> Before we jumped on, I was talking about, you know, like how we want this to go and and you've had a number of pretty big moments in your life. And I said, what was the biggest? And you started telling me and I was blown away. So could you Tell me a little bit about how that moment in uh, with married two young kids and another one on the way, yeah. and then you have this incident in your life. Could you uh, yeah. Yeah, share, share that story for us? Yeah, it was certainly interesting. It, it was um, a wonderful time. I'd, I'd finished playing. I'd been a school teacher for 10 years and um, had an opportunity to go to Canberra at the AIS to, as a football coach, soccer coach, with my old mate Ronnie Smith. Um, my um, daughter, my daughters were two and four when we went up, and four and six when all that happened. My wife had just fallen pregnant um, with our third daughter, Rebecca, and we were decided to come back to Melbourne. My mum had, had got breast cancer, and we, it's time to move the family back to Melbourne and be with family. Um, um, and I got a gig coaching my old club, Heidelberg, in the NSL. Um, we, I'd come, gone back to Melbourne by myself. Roz and the girls were still in Canberra. We were in the process of selling the house and pre-season training. Drove back up to Canberra on a Friday night. Had a fantastic weekend with the with my wife and girls, and was on the way back to Melbourne on Monday morning. And uh, my little red RX7 ended up on the wrong side of the Hume Highway. Still don't know why. And um, the truck driver 
I'm told, would have done an amazing job because he managed to swerve and uh, I hit his front right-hand tyre with an RX-7, I assume, going about 100 kilometres now. Um, and uh, fortunately for me, uh, two people on the scene were an off-duty copper and off-duty nurse that pulled me out and um, I'm still <laughs> I'm still here talking about it. I've got a few metal plates in my face. Uh, I had uh, the, the foot brake of the RX-7 went through the back of my hamstring. I've got a scar on the back of my, but I've still got my legs, my arms. I'm still here talking about it. So um, my big mate upstairs clearly wasn't finished with me, um, but that sort of takes the wind out of sails in more ways than one. So, oh yeah. Um, and before we get into more of how that did impact, oh, the, the the overwhelming feeling I get here is, do do you? I mean, you mentioned the big man upstairs. Um, do you have a, a spiritual belief around those sort of things? Because it kind of feels like when you explain, it's like it's like you were protected, right? That's what that's kind of what I get feeling. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I I don't have this this wonderful. I I grew up in a you know working class family in in London, and um, I'm a Church of England boy and all that. But you know, my family, my my, my dad when he was around was a dead set atheist, so we weren't a uh, a great church-going family, but but over the over the journey, um, I've been close, uh, and then sort of organised religion can be a bit incense, incense bells and incense and nonsense. So, I, I've I've got a relationship with um, my big mate upstairs, as I call him, um, and during the times of my life, and, and it's just helped me have someone to talk to and someone to share things with. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely believe that there's someone bigger than me that has a some sort of influence over over what goes on. Um, I'm, I, you know, I don't know how to explain it any better than that. But mm-hmm. um, I'm still a when I'm out swimming in the cold water in the bay, I'm 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 praying that I'm going to get back in without freezing to death. <laughs> That's for sure. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I like to believe that you know people who were meant to have a bigger impact in in the world which clearly you went on to to do um yeah there are just some things that are meant to be like why why did you end up on the other side of the road who knows but you know the fact that the, the two people that were first there were were people who were able to help you that's probably saved your life right oh absolutely and, and rule number one in our house is life's not fair Rule number two, please refer back to rule number one. So it, do, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense, Ian, when when you know um, people can get taken from this world so early in their life, kids, and you, you look at that and you just go, it, just, it, it doesn't make any sense. But yeah. but maybe if there is if there is a sort of a plan, if there's someone up there that keeps offering forks in the road um, for choices for you to make, then um, maybe maybe there's something that I had to do. Or that I've still got to do, and that, and that's the reason that I'm here still swinging the bat and and getting an opportunity to do things like this and and having a talk with you. Yeah, yeah, love it. And and we'll get to some of these things later. But you're still beating some some big stuff in in recent years too. So yeah, there's clearly more for you. So you mentioned um, the the break went through your hamstring. Had you finished playing at that point? Well, yes, yes, I had. I, I've been playing in the, the, the NSL. My soccer career had finished and I was 30 and had an opportunity to go up to the AAS. Um, and I've learned over the, the journey that I'm a teacher. That's at the heart of what I do. 
I had an opportunity to work with a very, very good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Ron Smith, who's just one of the best coaches, teachers of players and coaches that I've ever come across. So that was a remarkable opportunity. But um, I did play a little bit there. And in fact, I, I got to meet um, Frank Arrick, um, who was the Socceroos coach. And we went up, he invited me to help him. And, and the you know, we sort of, he needed to make up the numbers. So because I was training every day at the AOS, I was in probably the best physical condition of my life. And we played this game and I scored a goal in the practice game. And afterwards he said, you can still play. So I said, yeah, I can still play. And at that point, he was coaching the Socceroos, but he was also coaching uh, St. George Budapest in the old NSL. And he said, will you, will you come up and have a game in the NSL? Uh, and I said, well, I don't think I can. I'm working, living and working in Canberra. But Ronnie said, no, nah, get out of your system. Let, let's just, you know. So um, I played one practice game, um, scored, a, scored a great goal, and then um, essentially Football Australia said, Frank, you can either have him as a player at St George or a, an assistant coach with the Socceroos. You can't do both. I have no idea why. Um, and I, I knew that the, the coaching, teaching was going to be my pathway moving forward. So so that was that was it. And playing was done. Easy choice when you look at that future. Um, maybe that wasn't always the case for, for people, but it's proven to be the right choice, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so if we come back to that... Um, that accident like how did that so do you do you have any conscious memory of any of it or did you wake up in a hospital suddenly in a bad way or i i've got this vague image uh, back in the day this is when cassette tapes ruled the world and i used to listen to a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of great music and uh, particularly doing the, you know sort of the drive from melbourne to canberra which i i, I did a bit and uh, and that, and you know, I, I used to list, listen to um, positive thinking tapes and a, a whole raft of things. In in my mind, I have this image of changing a, a cassette tape, and that stretch of the um, uh, of the highway was two lane. It was like one lane, and then a whole bunch of dirt, and a, a lane on the other side, and a whole bunch of dirt. And in my head, I, I end up in the dirt on the left hand side of the road. And I adjust the steering of the car and take off. That's, but I don't know whether I made that up or that is what happened. I have no recollection of the collision itself. Um, at times, I wonder if I can remember being pulled out of the car. But again, I'm not sure. <laughs> this is a bit ugly, but. Uh, the, the first real memory I have was I, I, I was transferred to. Um, um, Wodonga-based hospital, um, it was by the time uh, all that happened, it was, it was pretty dark and there was a, a doctor fussing over me and I, I I had that much blood obviously going in. I sort of threw up blood, which went over him, and I don't think he was pretty, any too happy about that. But, no, not bad. Um, <laughs> as you can imagine. But that, that was my first sort of conscious memory and then, and then you know, life got better each day after that. Mm. Do you... Uh, well, did you have conversations with your wife and do you remember those conversations about like the aftermath for her, like suddenly hearing that and the, all the... Yeah, we, 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 never, we never really discussed what it meant, but Roz was pregnant with Rebecca, our, our youngest daughter. So we've got three beautiful women. Uh, Jessica's our eldest daughter, Emma, who sits in the middle, and, and Rebecca, uh, who's the youngest. And we were pregnant 
we were obviously moving back to Melbourne. We were partway through um, selling our house in Canberra. Um, and, of course, I didn't know this, but, you know, people looked after the kids in Canberra. People looked after Roz. People drove her. Friends drove her to, um, to see. She she walked into the the um, my room and sort of passed out just seeing this, the the state I was in. Um, but But we never really... I don't recall really having, you know, what that might have meant for us. We, we, we tend to be sort of glass half full in terms of the way we look at the world. And it was like, shit, this is really bad. Uh, could have been an awful lot worse, but it isn't, you know, it, what it isn't. Well, at this stage, it isn't worse because yeah. uh, re- remarkably in seven days later, I walked on crutches, hobbled out of hospital with my face wired. Um, but I, I walked out of hospital seven days later, you know, wow. and you go, that's just unbelievable. Now, what I, I did find out, there were a whole bunch of people praying for me, and, and back then, you know, as I said, I, I wasn't really into that, but I have no idea whether that impacted my recovery or not, but I walked out with a, a break in one of my ankles, a whole bunch of stitches in the back of my leg, um, three metal plates here here, and, and here in my face, Um I'm sure they took some wrinkles out uh, through that surgery as well. Um, <laughs> and my jaw wired, um, so I was talking like that and, and sucking chocolate thick shakes through a straw. Um, you know, given what could have happened in that sort of collision between a little red RX-7 doing 100 kilometres an hour one way and a semi-trailer doing 100 kilometres the other way, it's just remarkable. Mm, absolutely oh, I keep coming back to that sort of feeling and I've, I've had other people in car accidents say that it was like it would happen in slow motion and they do kind of feel like well it was yeah like felt protected um, given you've got no conscious memory that might be a, a stretch but uh, there's, there's too many unexplained things that just seem to work out the way that they uh, they should to, for it to be coincidence for me um, the recovery for you then like i'm thinking mentally that must have been like there must have been so many thoughts that went through your head like trying to remember the accident um i'm thinking was it hard to get back into the car and drive all of these different things yeah Uh, certainly getting back into the car when we went from i I, well sorry we went from um Albury Wodonga Base Hospital back to Melbourne where um, we stayed with um, Roz's mum and dad. Um, the kids were with us as well. Then we still hadn't sold the house in Canberra. So we, we had to go back, which I, I can't remember the exact timeline, but Roz's dad um, drove us back up to Canberra and we went through that the area where I had the accident sort of uh, dusk at night, which gave it a, a bit of an eerie feeling. Uh, and then I was in the back seat. I wasn't even in the front seat of the car. I was in the back seat of the car. And I have to say that was one of the most uncomfortable uh, feelings I've ever had, just going through that place again and and understanding. Um, our, other, our, other, our other family car was a, um, a Sigma wagon. I don't, I don't know if you remember what that was. Yeah. Sort of a very medium-sized family car. And Roz's dad, who went to have a look at the RX-7, which was in the, the panel beaters, said, oh, it would have fitted in the back of the, 
would have wow. fit in the back of the, the there. So it, it was in that moment, it was, you know, really, really bizarre. But as I said previously, I, I was just so grateful for what had happened. And I've never been a great one for dwelling on what the outcome. I, I was obviously very mindful that, you know, with with two young red a third one on the way, if I hadn't survived, you know, what life would have been like for Roz would have been um, would have been terrible and, and incredibly difficult. Uh, Roz is the teacher, and you know, she'd have I'm sure she'd have gone back to teaching and this, that, and the other. But you, that bit. And I think that's part of being in this situation. You know, when I was diagnosed with cancer, you your first thing is the possible loss, what you're going to lose, and and then how you deal with that. So there weren't too many scary moments. I, I, I was, as I said, I'd just starting a, a new gig, coaching, and I was uh, I was sort of housebound for a while. My jaws jaws were wired shut, uh, as I said, and. Um, a couple of the players came to the house and I'm sort of talking and we, we're, I'm trying to organise pre-season training with an assistant coach, uh, a, a young family. Um, and, yeah, we, we were, I guess, already moving on and, and the, the drama, thankfully, Rosie took over the, you know, the selling of the house in Canberra and, 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 and got all of that stuff done as, as my darling wife does. She, she gets stuff done incredibly well. Um, so yeah, blessed. Yeah, isn't that just typical of a uh, sport-loving male? Just to like, we've got to make sure we get pre-season organised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Priorities. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 what about your girls? Like, did they have much? The the, the two that were already born at that point, did they have any conscious uh, memory of? of any of that or any of the yeah yeah they, they, they all remember it was a bit of an adventure because all of a sudden you know we were back in melbourne and and we were at nan and pop's place and and they were there i, I actually can't remember i asked Rose when when they did go back or whether whether they didn't actually go back i can't i can't remember what happened there but they, they were they were they were back in melbourne they were back friends they they ended up back in school um Ros's brother Rod had three kids as well, and they were they were really close. They lived around the corner, so all of a sudden, life and on. Yeah, dad, dad was you know they didn't understand how serious it could have been, and I don't think we ever had that conversation with them. Um, but they were just back being kids, playing and 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 getting on with life, and and that's really what we wanted to happen anyway. So. Yeah, it's good. You, you touched on something there, which is that that um, your, your mind thinks about all the possible scenarios, and. Yeah. To me, that's one of the things around grief that that can have the the reoccurring impact because of we're, we're brilliant meaning making and story making machines, and so we create all yeah. these different what ifs and what could have been. And so, so did that? Is that something that played out for a long time? Like having those, like those repetitive thoughts around the possibilities? No. I, I, I honestly don't think so. It, it made me one. One of the things that kept coming to me was um, on my journey up until that point, I'd had um, a, a couple of good friends that, that like me had escaped. They had near misses with heart attacks and, and 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 other medical things. And for all of us, 
your life changes in an instant and you know there's a rehab process you had to go through one of my my close friends al um, was a really big human being and he was tall he'd been played basketball as a, as a man but had put on a lot of weight and and you know he had a, a heart attack um and as a consequence of that um he changed his diet he got focused um he, he had um, one young child at that stage and they were on the way for two and he started to walk and exercise and, and he he changed as another friend did in, in another instance but the the further you get away from the date that this incident happened I found that you know it, it lost focus and, and if you're not focused on the changes that you want to make then it's very easy to slip back and in the case of my good mate Bigel, um, the 25 kilos that he lost went back on and, and unfortunately um, he had another massive heart attack that, that ended up um, taking him away from a young family. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, it, it, it's those things that, that really were, well, you make the changes and you're conscious of the changes but then life goes on, particularly when you're you know, I'm lucky now we're, we're retired, our kids are grown up and, and we get to do things very differently. Our mortgage is paid off. But when you're in that middle part of your life, when you're growing a family, you, you're, you're paying a mortgage, you've, you've probably got a, a job that you may or may not love that you're doing because it pays you well enough to pay the mortgage and feed your family. Um, getting your priorities, as you call them, sorted out, you know, what's important. Um, I think that's integral to it as well. Um, and what I have learned is it's a lot easier to talk about than it is to do. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, the, the priorities piece is so important, and particularly when you talk about work, right? When, when you're faced yeah. with moments like that, the reality of, of the situation is the most important thing. There's your health and also your family because there's you look at all the possibilities of loss and to me i think back to when uh, a young a young fellow that i was managing in the workplace and, and had a fair bit to do with his growth and then he and then he suddenly passes away was that that same feeling i'm sitting there just going none of that matters like none of that yeah. work stuff matters what matters is is the the things that are dearest to our heart and that's to me that's the of course, loss is horrible, but there's always something positive that can come out of it. And, yeah. and to me, it's that those reminders. So I want to come back to what you said about the making the changes and, and staking focus on it. But I, but I just wanted to come back at – I'll come back to that in a minute because I wanted to talk about what you were talking about before is around, okay, well, if that's the, the change in your priorities, was it a real moment of – looking at life completely differently in terms of, okay, well, I've got a second chance here or, um, okay, well, what, what do I need to do differently from your perspective? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it was certainly a time, um, to be thankful. Um, uh, surprise, surprise. Um, we did start to go to, um, church, um, more, more regularly and, and get a bit more around the, the bells and smells and incense and nonsense. Um, so, so that became a, uh, a real thankful thing. Um, as I said, I, I, 
I don't ever remember not being positive. And I wish I wish I I think that's because of the home I grew grew up in, in and around my parents. Yep. Um, but I'm not sure because we never actually really discussed it. All I, all I do know is that my parents loved me and, you know, they moved from the UK to Australia for a better life for their family and, and they always wanted the best for us and told us we could do every, everything we can. So I don't know whether that, that, you know, glass half full nature is something that you're born with or you can grasp. I do, I do know that people that don't have it and a glass half empty, life is, is incredibly more difficult for them. Because they spend so much time in stress and worry and, and all of that stuff. So, the good news for me Ian, is that um, whilst I was, <laughs> I had the image of what could have been. It was about okay. Well, this has happened. What what do we do? Yep, we're a young family. We're we're selling the house. We're moving back to Melbourne because, of course, Mum was was going through uh, her own cancer at that stage. Kids back to school. We dealt with all of the stuff, and we were getting on. We were getting on with life, you know. I, I it was clear, you know, if I'd have been, if I'd have been, um, it, instead of being a Monday morning, it had been a Saturday night, and I'd been on the Terps and had contributed in some way because of what was going on, you know. But I, I was fortunate that 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 wasn't the case either. It was, it was just this thing that had happened. Um, Nothing really I can change about the thing apart from, hey, if you're driving an RX-7 down the um, um, highway number one, um, don't be playing with cassettes when there's dirt lanes nice and close. You know, take the learning with you. But yeah. but, I, but it, it really didn't – well, maybe that's a better question for my wife. I'm going to say I don't think it really impacted who I was as a person. I was thankful. I was grateful. And I was now going to move on, and 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 if if my big mate upstairs had kept me around for a reason, then I'm going to go and find it by doing, being the best version of me that I can in you know what's laid out, and that was obviously coaching, and and I eventually stumbled into the the, the leisure industry. Yeah, I love that, and and ultimately when we go through these moments of grief, that's. It's essentially the bit we can control the most is well just being the best version of myself so i love yeah. that outlook you you, you you mentioned something there around um you know your, your parents brought you out here to me this is one of the beautiful parts of australian culture and particularly football is that how many of well we know right in australian football how how important the people that have come from all over the world have been to the growth of football but also how much they've contributed in terms of uh, giving back, creating these communities, the, the players, the coaches, it's the whole way through. And I think about how many people came here for a better life. And, of course, yeah. you're going to have more of that positivity. Like my, my wife's parents are both 10-pound palms, that, yeah. that desire to, for things to be better. Uh, I think about my friends who have come here, who've not them, but their, their um, family lineage have come from around the world and they've all got that drive to, to make something better and, and, and improve yeah. things. And to me, that's just such a, a great part of, of, yeah, like I said, of this country. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but to me, it's just a, it's a, it's one of the, yeah, the magic parts of Australia and football. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it's part of that rich multicultural tapestry that, that makes Australia what it is. You know, the, I've often said, you know, the, the, um, 
there are great games in in Sydney and Victoria AFL and, and NRL, and you know they often have um, a, a multicultural round or something like that. Um, but my game has a multicultural round <laughs> every weekend. You walk into any game, you know, and there's a smell of Chavachich going along, or there's different music in the background. There's my club Heidelberg, you know. The, the Greeks have this relationship with God that just makes them the best, the best people to cook lamb in the world. It's just, it's just this, 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 this uh, marriage made in heaven there. And uh, you know, you if if you if I close my eyes, I can walk into a football ground and I can get the that the smell and the aromas of that rich Maori cultural tapestry that's that just makes Australia, you know. What a wonderful place. And, and and I think when you do do that, if you move halfway around the world for a better life for your family, it's not hard then to understand how so many of those people have arrived here and and gone on to have fantastic lives and made significant contribution to Australian culture and history Yeah, because that's what they came here to do. You know, they didn't need the motivation to, to do it. That They were... They were they moved here or their parents moved them here to do, to do that. So hmm. probably not surprising. No, absolutely. I'm also like drawn to the part of sport, which, you know, some people don't, don't see the value in sport, but it, the, the element there around it, it, it unites people. It unites communities. It, it allows crossovers of, crossovers of communities. And, and, and yes, football may have had some different challenges in the past around where that might've uh, boiled over, but there's there's absolutely no denying how that brings people together, and I, and I imagine you would have seen a fair bit of that. You mentioned you you're at the AIS um, and Ron Smith, and and I imagine yeah. him and and your contribution to this had a major positive impact on on what we call the golden generation in Australian football too. Yeah, look, I was I was obviously in Canberra for for four years, so. Um, my impact was minimal compared to the AIS as a whole and Ron, Ronnie and what he did. The, the AIS, Australian Institute of Sport, was the best football finishing school arguably in the world. You, know, mm. it, it, you can't say it made all of these players, but it certainly helped finish them. They got, they got offered a scholarship to come in because they had talent. You know, they they were often good physically, but their technique was good. The way they played the game was good, um, and the AAS offered them an opportunity because Ron is still one of the best students of the game. So his his basic premise was: we're going to bring these we're going to bring these kids in, and we want to help them develop the behaviours that the best players in the world have. And he watched football that way. And he's still doing it today. So he records every game at the World Cup. He's still in his 70s. He's analysing all the games with today's – his life's a bit easier because he's not stopping and starting the video. He's got analysis (laughs) software, which he's he's helped develop as well. Um, And he's still looking at how goals are scored because that's how you win games of football. But, you know, it it wasn't about playing 4-4-2. It wasn't about systems. It was about – what are the behaviours? What the, what did the best players do in the world? I was 30 and I arrived, I was retired from playing football and I learned more about what the best strikers in the world do in the years between 30 and 33 when I was at the AIS studying and coaching 
the game than I did in the, the first 30 years. You know, it's just mm. just remarkable. Amazing. But, and, and so that's that's what these these young men did, that they, they got these skills and amazingly they went from a country that is a minnow, uh, you know, was more of a minnow in world football back then, but they were they had the character and attributes that made them attractive to NSL clubs as senior players, but so many of them, you know, just went straight to clubs overseas. Mm. Um, and and particularly that gold generation who of course were were playing at some of the biggest clubs in Europe. Yeah, and again even more remarkable of, of the achievement of the of the current team given that if you compare the two lists like we were talking about before we jumped on and recorded, that those those players from that 2006 squad were playing all through Europe in, in the biggest Absolutely. leagues. Yeah. The other thing that um, I was thinking there when, you, when you're talking about that is that the, the AIS was like rounding them off as you sort of described, but so much of that came from the, that background as well, like where, where football was something that was in the home it was something that that started from a young age. It was it was nurtured. It was yeah. um, encouraged. They, they community. They all went to the the game together. And and again, I know we've we've kind of been through some um, some changes there in football in Australia. But that that's some of some of the value of all of those communities has been lost a bit in the transition as well. Um, the uh, a, a, another guy who's been on this podcast, Tom Byer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Uh, I've become a good friend of Tom. Yeah, football yeah, starts at home. I just love it. He's a great man. Uh, he'd be he would be over the moon this morning as Japan have also <laughs> qualified for the second phase. I mean, can you believe they're beating Spain? They're beating Germany. Incredible. Um, yeah, remarkable. Yeah, yeah, so good. Anyway, enough enough football talk. I'm I'm getting a bit lost <laughs> in my passion there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm a distractor. That's <laughs> no, good. I love it. Um, you talk there about something really important for people when they've experienced a setback, loss, grief, however you want to put it. You said then it makes you think, okay, I've got to make changes. And because if I look at my own journey, is like. I didn't know how to make the changes. I didn't have any guidance on making the changes, but eventually you find your way. But it's the—it's actually the keeping those changes sustainable, which you identified as key. And you talked about your your mate there, that unfortunately that that, that didn't unfold for him. But well, what were the key changes for you? What needed to change for you to make sure that you could uh, be the best version of yourself? Yeah, I, I think at the time I was reading a lot of... Um, leadership, positive thinking, motivational stuff. Um, I, I'd never been one for writing down goals. And I did go, I did go through a, um, a period where I would, I would do all of that. Um, but, but I, <clears throat> I just knew that there was more, there was more to be done and that I guess I was a project. So, um, I was certainly a long way off being the perfect husband, a long way off being the perfect father, um, but I was then going to strive to be the the best kind of dad and husband that I could, and understand that along the journey it wouldn't it be great if life was linear, but you know that I was going to I was going to make mistakes and and move on, and and, and I, that came from investing in me, and I've said that to people you know so often that. 
it, it, it's a wise man once said, this is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is, Ian, I tell you, don't touch the fire because it will burn you. You touch the fire and immediately you have wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a significant difference between the two. So, you know, we, we life, life doesn't always give us mentors. Um, I'm fortunate that life did for me in Ronnie Smith, but he was a football mentor. Now, along the way, that also includes leadership, but... You know, I never had a conversation with Ronnie about how to be a better husband or, or a better dad. Um, um, he was a good role model, um, but I didn't have that conversation. But if I had any questions or queries in football, I, he was on the end of the phone. Um, I, I don't recall having any – if I'd have asked my dad, you know, what, what what's it like to be a good dad, he, he wouldn't have been comfortable answering that question. But mm. I could I could learn from – what it was to be a good father by looking at him. He was a great role model. You know, he never missed a day work sick in his life. Um, wow. He decided to move his family to Australia and they, he arrived with a hundred pounds in his pocket. You know, they hadn't, they had nothing uh, apart from a, a dream, a vision for the, for the future of what they wanted to do. Um, he was always there. You know, we, we he was, my parents were, were married when they were 18. I was born when they were 20. So my parents were good friends as well. And remarkably, I got to play football with my dad when we first moved out here to Australia for a, Brilliant. For, for a season, which was, which was great. So I was sort of waffling there. But I invested in me in, in terms of, you know, I, I think I've already had that positive attitude, but it got better. I understood the importance of, of learning which made sense to me because I, you know, I, I worked out through all this that at, at the heart of who I am, it's a teacher. You know, I was a, I was a primary school teacher for 10 years, but uh, then I became a coach. Ron, Ron Smith tricked me into becoming a coach um, <laughs> and I did that for a fair while. And then I, I went off into the business world and, you know, you develop the knowledge which becomes wisdom and you then take other people under your wing and I'm, you know, that, that's still fortunately for me happening today. I still get phone calls from people that want to pick my brains about something. And I love that. Absolutely. That stuff makes your ego feel good. You know, yeah. it, it's wonderful in life to, to maintain relationship and connection. Um, and it's great to be able to think you can still um, help people. So um, I think that, that, that for me was probably the most significant thing. And, and then, you know, you just get reminders <laughs> of how precious life is. Uh, and for me, you know, that was that was being diagnosed with cancer and you go, geez, this is, I, I couldn't help it, but think on all the things that I wasn't going to see. If this, if this doesn't work out, then my girls are already grown up but that growing up hasn't finished. Um, we don't have grandchildren yet. None of them are married yet. We've got partnerships and all that. And, and the immediate thing was all of the loss, what I'm not going to be able to see, what, what mm. we're going to lose through this process. Um, and that just was like, okay, well, then that, if you ever need a, a reason to keep on living, then then that's it. You know, there's no guarantees that any of those things are going to happen. But... Um, you know, when, when you when you come from the world of high performance with that sort of attitude um, 
and you see the oncologist and they say, okay, you need to do um, this, this and this. I'm like, hey, I don't have, I don't have a problem with that. You, you tell me what fixes this and I'm going to do it. You know, how high? How high do you want me to jump, coach? I'm, I'm through the hoops. I'm doing everything I can because um, life's precious and my family are precious. And then all of a sudden this wide focus again comes back to what's the key for you? And the key for me was my family and my health. Um, and everything outside of that is peripheral. Um, and anything that wants to get in the way of that now um, needs to go through a, a serious checking mechanism. Um, but I also understand that I'm fortunate because I'm the age I am. We don't have a mortgage anymore um, uh, and those sort of things. So, mm-hmm. um, You said before we jumped on, Oh, I've got a dentist appointment. I, we probably won't talk for two hours, but I can see this guy. <laughs> going on because I've just written about five questions. Yeah. So, so you said, oh, now I'm just uh, now I'm just um, waffling. But no, that's that's where the the magic comes out. Like you, you talk there a lot about the role modelling. So your your Ron Smith as a football mentor, mentor, but he's also so much more than that because of the the certainty and the confidence that, that he instills in you. Uh, as the parent, the best thing we can do is be the role model. To they, We know they, they take so much more from what we do than what we say to them, isn't that for sure? Uh, uh, isn't that the case? And <laughs> yeah. um, some, some sort of key messages there that I took out of that is, is it being that role model, investing yourself and continuing to learn. I, I, I finished uni. I did teaching as well. And I just said, I'm not. I'm not reading another book. I'm not doing any more training. Oh, I'm done with it. And that, that's because it was like a hindsight. I probably shouldn't have gone to uni because I was pretty done with that whole yeah. that whole um, framework. But it, that just stunted my growth because I stopped re- reading. I stopped learning. And yeah. it's only when you bring those things back into your world that, that, that everything changes. So I, I love that you've highlighted those things. As you said, in the sporting environment, those things are crucial. We have to, we have to continue to learn. We have to continue to invest in ourselves. And I love the point you made there. We have to have a reason for living. Now, I watched my uh, mother-in-law go through cancer, and and she talked about the same thing about, I want to be here f- to see my children get married, and yeah. have children, and and I'm going to be okay. I'll, I'm like that. That positive element had such a powerful impact. What I also know is that the people that it was most difficult for was not the person going through it, but it was everyone on the periphery. Is that something that you would relate to as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, the the, <laughs> the first thing that happens is that all of a sudden people that you've not heard from from ever yeah. try and reach out. Some of them ring you, some of them send you a text. And, and it's almost like you hear from someone that someone's got cancer or there's something going on in their life and maybe they're not going to be around much longer and they go, oh, shit, he's a decent bloke. I'm going to ring him and wish him well. And, and you know, it, which brings you to another thing about how important it is to keep catching up with people over the yeah. journey. Otherwise, you end up catching up with, with uh, bloody funerals and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, so... Um, now I've gone off track. What's sorry, Ian? I forgot. The impact on, on the other people in your world. Oh yeah, a- absolutely. The, the, one of the things that I, I saw when my mum thirty years ago had cancer, they they 
my sister Karen and I had grown up, we'd moved out. They'd moved down to the coast um, uh, down here by the Bay of Melbourne. Dad built a, um, they, they bought a, um, a two-bedroom house to lock up stage and Dad built it out. They did, they did a fantastic job. And they had these really close group of friends. But when, and remember these are the days before mobile phones and text messages, this was the day of, you know, you either picked up a telephone um, or you went around and knocked on someone's door. They had this these group of people that were, they were incredibly close to. But when mum was diagnosed with cancer, they lost contact with half of them. And what, I, what I've learned through my own journey is that's because people just don't know what to say. Hmm. And, yeah. and when you're on the receiving end, you go, you know what? I, I had a call from, um, from Kevin Musket, who's done a fantastic job um, we, we met. Uh, along, well, I was a coach when he was a when he was a baby, <laughs> essentially. But it, you know, he's just won the championship like Ange Postecoglou did in Japan with Yokohama FC Marinos. And the phone went one day, and it's it's Muskie, and he was so uncomfortable because he just didn't know what to say. He wanted yeah. to tell me that you know he, he loved me and and hoped that I was going to be okay, but he he just he fumbled and fumbled around, and I said, Muskie. It's okay, mate. There isn't there isn't the right words to say here. The best thing that you've done is actually pick up the phone, send a message, let people know that you care, and yeah. that is the most significant thing that you can do. And there was a you know big sigh, <laughs> big sigh at the end of the phone, and then we talked about footy and and, and sort of life went on. But yeah. that that for me is the is the thing that people just, you know, we don't get coached. There's no coaching on, on how to handle grief personally. There's no yeah. coaching on how do you deal with people that are going through really, really tough times. Um, and you, I think it's part of that whole learning that the importance of building relationships and communication are the, are the keys that hold any life, team, family together. Mm. Um my experience has been the same that the, the the conversation around loss especially in those early days is is so challenging and i mean even our own experience i i, I saw your on your own podcast which we'll talk about later the football coaching life and and you're interviewing the great man harry gill and uh i'm like oh wow like fascinating story i'd love your style I'll, I'll reach out and then unfortunately you went through one of those moments like while while we're having those conversations, and I imagine for you, and I know it's pretty raw, so we don't have to sort of stick with this part of the conversation. But I imagine those sort of same patterns would have shown up in, in the recent passing of your father as well. Yeah, look, it, it, it was a it was a shock. I, amazingly, I, I got diagnosed with cancer, and Dad and I have always been close. As I said, we were we were friends as well as father and son. And mm. and he moved to Bat. My sister Karen and her husband Gary and family live in Ballarat. Um, and after Mum passed away, he sold up. And it, a few years later, he ended up moving to Ballarat as well. So he's been there. We caught up regularly, um, but not every day or anything like that. The day mm. I get diagnosed with cancer, he's now ringing me every day. So every day we're having a phone call. <laughs> um, and we're talking every day, predominantly about the weather, as you do. Definitely yeah. about football. Um, yeah, uh, he, he was a he was a Melbourne City fan, and and, and obviously I've tied up to Melbourne victory. He loved mm. the Socceroos. He loved the Matildas. Um, mm. uh, we had we had all those conversations. Then um, 
I go into remission and he gets diagnosed with lung cancer. And now I'm calling him every day um, and yeah. he's went on for, for a couple of years. So you're, when you're, you're having those conversations, I, I still turn around and go, oh, I've, I've not rung Dag today. And you go, well, hang on, he's passed away months ago now, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the habit of, of having him there and being there is, is just remarkable and so sudden. For me, personally, it was a blessing in the way that it happened to him because he'd had a, in, in Dad's words, he'd had a, he'd had a good ings. Um, he, he saw, and obviously the, the treatment of cancer has changed since my mum had breast cancer where um, initially she survived the surgery, but then the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy nearly killed her because it was really, really savage. And, and the remarkable people, doctors and nurses, researchers that, that do this stuff now, you know, apart from losing the hair, um, that that was my side effects of of going through cancer. But because of mum, even though dad had seen me, because of his memories of him nursing mum through all that, uh, he wasn't going to have um, chemotherapy. Just wouldn't do that. So he went through this whole this whole process. Um, but his fear was that he would sort of waste away. Um, and the blessing, if there is a blessing in, in losing your dad, was that he had a heart attack and, and it happened really, really quickly. So so for dad, you know, I, I, I was really happy that when he went, that was the way he went and it was quick and it was simple and, and, and he didn't go through all that horrible stuff that he'd been tinkering around. Mm, yeah. Um, well, thank you for sharing that, Gary. I really appreciate that. Um, the the key thing that sort of I pulled out of that was making sure you have regular conversations with the important people in your world and don't wait till funerals to then talk about how amazing they were. Like, like your, your old mate, Kev, he, he rang you and, uh, and he made sure he shared that. I think it's a reminder. Don't wait till people are sick. Don't wait till, till it's too late. Like have those conversations and have them regularly because it yeah. means so much to people. I, I don't know if you've been there at funerals and you're hearing the wonderful things and you're going, you know, what have been great if they were there to hear that yeah absolutely hmm. yeah we I, I don't know whether it's a part of the way we're brought up it, certainly the world's more emotionally cognizant now I, I, I can remember I don't, I, as an adult the first time I told my dad I loved him and, and I reached out and gave him a hug and, and it was like hugging a lunk of concrete because, you know, men of his era, they might have told that their, their women they loved them occasionally, <laughs> but they certainly didn't tell other men they loved them. You know, that was just a to-do. And, and it, 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 you know, the next time we caught up, I did the same. Then I started to, to tell him I loved him over the phone. And, and eventually, you know, it, he, it went from hugging a lump of concrete to having this big, soft, cuddly dad that I remember as a, as a young child. And, and he couldn't. He couldn't leave me then without telling me how much he loved me and and uh, ooh, uh, and giving me a hug as well. Um, so people are special. I think the one of the nice things that's happening in this crazy world that we live in is that the people are have become more accustomed to telling people that that, that they love them, and that yeah. can be you know sometimes a superficial thing, but it, but it can also just mean hey. I really respect you and what you're doing and your place and importance in my life. 
Um, and there's this, this sort of, once two people say it, it's like, okay, there's a, there's a calmness in the room. Uh, we, we appreciate one another. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, the energy of those words is so powerful. So why would we not share more of that sort of energy around? Yeah. You touched on something else there that is really important. I know particularly for men, I know a lot of men listen to this podcast, uh, women I'm sure as well, but just like the, the current state of affairs for men is getting that validation. Yes, there's an ego part of it, but it's important for us to know that we're on the right path, that we're doing the right thing, that the people have got our back and they're supporting us on that journey because you think of how much of society continues to scream at us that, no, you're doing that wrong. No, you can't do that yeah. anymore. Like all these things that are so hardwired for, for, for our life because we had fathers like you described where this was the yeah. pattern. It's important to, to have that encouragement, whether it's football or life, right? Yeah. And, and, and stay in touch and reach out to people. Not, not, not everyone, you know, and I'm, I'm not, this is not something that I do lightly. I'm not, I'm not telling people that I don't love, I love them. <laughs> You know, it's just pointless. Um, when you, when you go to these, I'm going to call it the life defining moment. You you know who the people that are important to you are, the friends that are really important to you are. In, invest in them. You know, I don't know as much as you invest in. I was about as much as you invest in your family. Maybe not, but but. The, it doesn't have to be this huge, huge group. And that's the pr problem, you know, one of the massive problems of Facebook, you know, and social media. Everyone's got hundreds and thousands of people that they like and this, that, and the other. And you go, yeah, but you don't know any of these people. Who do you know? Who do you really care about? Who do you know really cares about you? Yeah. I mean, I guess like on, on LinkedIn, it's their, their superficial connections uh, until they become something more meaningful and, um yeah, we, we can't – what's the book? Um, uh, just something about the the, num, the number of fucks you can actually give. Like you can't go giving them out all over the place. <laughs> yeah. The limit. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned positive thinking cassettes. Now, I mentioned before I had this big – gap in my learning and I stopped learning but once I started again it was like that was the same thing for me it was that go-to of learning positive messages um what's it called um uh auto university right so every time you're in the car you're putting something on to learn yeah. and fill your mind and, and, I, and I imagine people listening to this there'd be a number of them that would do the same right which is great was there a go-to uh, person you like to listen to or a particular Part, like was there one one that you listened to again and again that had a profound impact for you? I, I was I was a great Zig Ziglar fan. Yeah, um, I just loved the way he delivered the message. I, I think because I'm a, I've worked out that I'm a teacher and a coach. I love people that have the capacity of making the complex simple, and and anyone that's got really simple and profound messages, um, that was it. Um, you know, he, he's obviously got and well, he's not around anymore, but. He, that twangy American accent that sometimes drives me mad. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I just, I just love Zig Ziglar. Um, I, I had a range of his stuff that I use all the time. Yeah. And you think how many people have, have 
graduated from his school, whether it was listening to cassettes or or reading, like he's had a massive impact. For me, it was like another twangy American accent, Jim Rohn. I listen to his stuff again and again. I I pass it on to people and they go, I just can't do that accent. But for (laughs) me, it was like it was messages that I needed to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And and at the time, I remember hearing that message uh, when the – when the student is ready, the teacher will appear and Jim Rohn literally turned up the next day and it's like <laughs> it's so true, right? Those, those those people that we feel like we know them because we just listen yeah. to them again and again. Absolutely. You mentioned that you went on this this journey. You said you retired and then you got – you had to have heart surgery and then cancer and you went, this retirement killing me. So could you tell us a little bit about that about that journey you've gone back to work now to make sure that you'll be healthy <laughs> well well yeah i i um i I'd, uh, I'd i'd been in the the, the world of high performance football helped work with melbourne victory and uh, and then left melbourne victory had a, a stint with sydney fc and come back and i i stumbled back into the leisure industry because i spent 20 years in the leisure industry and uh, managing swimming pools and golf courses and all of that stuff, and and eventually I went. You know what? I think it's I think it's time to uh, financially we're okay. I think it's time to sort of relax because I, I really wasn't enjoying it, um, and that was a good signal for me that uh, need to do it. So I do all that. I I, I then get sort of <clears throat> sucked back into to football, which is obviously a love and a passion and, and an opportunity there to help. Did that for a year, and then I'm like, no, I think I'm I think I'm done. So after Thinking I'm done, um, it's summertime, Roz and I, my wife, we're sleeping in, we're drinking coffee, we're going for walks, we're exercising, and then all of a sudden it's one o'clock in the afternoon and you go, God, how did we ever find time for work? Um, and yep. I, I go from a checkup with my cardiologist. I was born with a, um, a bicuspid aorta. So hopefully and you've got an aorta that's got three flaps that overlap and that's the valve uh, i was born um, i found out when i was at melbourne victory with a bicuspid valve and knew that at some point it would it would sort of be wearing out and would need replacing so um i didn't realize it would be at that time because i felt as fit and healthy as i had i was tan and life was good and the the cardiologist says no nah, we need to we need to get that replaced so um booked in and the surgeon did a fantastic job and uh, the Operation went fantastically well, albeit having your chest cracked open is a um, is an interesting piece when you wake up and you've got more wires and tubes in you than you could, you know, ever hope to see sticking in a human being. Yeah. Um, but I get through that. I get back into the gym. I'm working out. I'm really, really healthy again. Then I got a pain in my back. And, and being a bloke, um, I... Uh, I would sort of put that off for a while. I'm like, oh, it's just, you know, I'm cranking up the workload. It's going to be like that. <clears throat> and then uh, um, ended up being diagnosed with um, lymphoma. And we, we started that journey, but having been through all that, I went, Jesus, these significant health moments have come because I'm now retired. So that's far too dangerous. So <laughs> on LinkedIn, on LinkedIn, I changed my profile to um, uh, I, I was the lead consult, consultant at Gary Cole Consulting. Um, 
understanding fully that a consultant is someone that's got a laptop and a briefcase and is probably unemployed. So <laughs> that, 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 that's been my profile essentially for a couple of years, uh, which has been good because uh, we don't have any really ongoing customers. Um, but I was encouraged into Football Coaches Australia uh, three years ago and that has been absolute, you know, one of my absolute joys to help football coaches because I understand what an important job that is. If you want better players, we need better coaches. And within that, in the midst of COVID, um, we, we came up with the idea of the football coaching life to tell the story of Australia's men and women that, that coach our team. So, yeah, I've worked out definitely being retired is frigging dangerous. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so good. Uh, to me, what you're doing now is just a like a perfect environment for the journey you've just described to help other coaches about not just their coaching but their story, their life. Uh, you, you talked, to, you mentioned the word that tapestry. There's such a rich tapestry to your story, and um, yeah, it's so powerful. I would. Uh, it would be wrong of me not to to mention these things before we go. Um, you're doing you're doing some part time stuff with Football Australia now. You're a Australian Football Hall of Famer, which again, what a huge honour to have you here. And uh, forty caps for Australia, twenty goals. Well, there wouldn't be too many Australian strikers to have a record that that good a goal every two games. <laughs> No, I will confess that seven of those did happen in one game in a World Cup qualifier uh, down here in Melbourne against Fiji, which stood as a as a world, world record for a long time until uh, my old mate Archie Thompson managed to score 13 against American Samoa and, uh, and knocked me off. So, no, look, I, I'm really proud of my contribution to, to the Socceroos uh, this year. This, obviously, we're, we're at the World Cup now and, and Arnie and the team are... They're going to play against Argentina for a spot in the final eight uh, on the weekend, which is just so proud of that. This is 100 years of the Socceroos. The first game was in 1922 against um, New Zealand in Dunedin. So it's been a great year of celebration. So my life in and around the, the, the Socceroos and Australian football has, has meant the world to me. And, um, yeah, go to the Socceroos. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, hopefully, like I said, that when this goes out, we might have like a quarterfinal and dare I say semifinal to uh, <laughs> to come. Yeah. <laughs> Would, wouldn't that be great? It would be. Um, well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll send our good vibes about that and, and we'll hope for the best. Um, Gary, thank you for sharing your story. stories so openly. Some of all of those different things, I'm sure, uh, particularly the most recent, challenging to talk about. So thank you. Um, but also hopefully for you, therapeutic. I know it definitely is for the listeners to, to hear the journey and how you come out the other side. So thank you, Gary. I really appreciate it, mate. No, thanks, Ian. I, I appreciate you asking me on. It's, um, it's always um, humbling to tell your story. Um, and thank you for the work you're doing. You know, grief is... Um, you're, if you're a grief, it says the grief code. Maybe you're the grief coach. It, it's a it's a very personal thing. This was this is really ridiculous. It's been going around my head. I was watching a TV show the other day, so this was just pure drama. And um, this uh, <clears throat> this like son and uh, son lost a child, and they go to the funeral, and and the the mother of the child is grieving, 
uh, and the wise man amongst them, uh, he's like, I've, I need to go over and, and share in the grief. And you go, no, you can't do that. You can't share grief. Um, you can, you know, you can support grief, but you can't, you can't share it because it's such a personal thing. But what you're doing, I think, uh, is giving people an insight that, that we just don't talk about. So, uh, so congratulations, mate. Keep up great work. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, for me, it's, yeah, absolutely, because we can never know what someone's going through, but it, if we can lighten the load for them in some way, um, then it's impactful. And, and I know people like yourself sharing their story not only lightens the load for you and for me, but also for everyone listening. So, again, thank you. Thanks, mate. Been good talking with you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.